Brilliant. So we have a basically a, a prayer, and it's a, a big prayer, and it contains an epic number of words. Um, and actually, having a look at this, and some people were asking me during the week, what are you preaching on? And I would say this passage here, and I have a read, and, and basically come to the amazing conclusion, there's a lot of words here. Um, and that was my impression when I first opened it up as well. Um, but it is, a, it is an important prayer, um, because Paul, as I was trying to articulate earlier, uh, hadn't actually met these people in, in Colossae, which was a, um, a town probably uh, about 150 k's away from Ephesus, um, where Paul was quite familiar with. But uh, essentially Paul had set up a church in Ephesus, and uh, that church was, um, it was growing and it was sending people out, missionaries, and a, a man by the name of Epaphras went out and thought, this gospel is an amazing idea, I'm planting a church and I'm going to do it in Colossae. So Paul hears about this, he's delighted, and he has a prayer for these people. Well, he actually has a whole letter for them, and it's one of the most amazing letters in the New Testament, um, in my humble opinion. Um, and he has a prayer, and it starts off, So from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. So the first thing is that this is a, a prayer that's always on his mind. He's always thinking about this church, and he's thinking these sorts of thoughts. Um, and, and therefore it's a really good option for us as a, as a church that is essentially quite small. Um, I don't know, it's not really a church plant, I suppose, or I suppose it is. Um, but we're looking to grow and we're looking to, to grow in the gospel as well. And the, the, the challenges that we're facing, the Colossians, were basically from a, um, a bunch of people that were quite sneaky. Uh, they were saying, yes, Christ but also this. And in doing so, they were, uh, they were twisting the teachings, um, or t twisting the gospel in a sense. And uh, they were giving Christ a very small part in, in, in the whole teaching scheme of things. Um, so what Paul does is he basically goes into the situation and completely exalts Christ. It's amazing. Uh, and, and he does that in the... In the um, in the verses that come after this, uh, but before that, he actually talks about um, he talks about the how Epaphras has basically done a good job. They've heard the gospel correctly, and so he goes on to pray. And uh, the things that he prays for are pretty amazing. Um, and the the title of the sermon is about being pleasing to the God who is already pleased with us. And so he prays a number of things that fall into that category. It talks about being pleasing to God. And uh, he talks about three things. Firstly, walking according to the will of God. That's one way that we can be pleasing to the God who is already pleased with us. Um, secondly, persevering with joy. And thirdly, growing in gratitude. And that's going to be the structure that we're going to look at this with. So first up, the prayer that Paul uh, has been repeatedly praying for the Colossians, begins with a request uh, for, the, for them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And it's quite a simple prayer, but I don't know, if you're anything like me, the, the phrase God's will conjures up a whole lot of... It's just a buzzword um, in Christian circles, and it's quite confusing. And, and so someone will be thinking, uh, okay, God's will, um, what am I going to be doing after university? Uh, 
someone else at the very same time will be thinking, oh, what am I going to do with that pay rise that I've been given? And someone else is going to be thinking, oh, well, does God want me to buy extra crunchy peanut butter or just crunchy peanut butter when I go to Pack and Save later in this afternoon? And, and it's kind of like, there's a whole scale of things which God may actually have a will about. And so it's, it's quite, it's a, it's a buzzword for a good reason. I mean, ultimately, it's the, the second question you're going to ask after, uh, is there a God? Is there a God? Yeah, there is a God. Okay, What's his will? So it's not, a, it's not a, um, an irrelevant question at all. And so Paul's praying that they'll be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Uh, I'll just a note, we're going to be working straight through the text, so keep your finger on the page and, um, and follow it through. So there are a whole range of responses, as I've said, to the phrase God's will. So as with many things in, in the Christian walk, it's much, it's quite easy, or it's a lot easier to, or helpful to, to work from the outside to the inside, from the big things first, then to the small things and basically work from God and then to us. Uh, Curtis Vaughan writes, The will of God, in its broadest and most inclusive sense, is the whole purpose of God as revealed in Christ. I'll say that again. The will of God, in its broadest and most inclusive sense, is the whole purpose of God as revealed in Christ. So that's the whole lot. Um, Which is not usually what you think about when you're thinking, What's God's will? You're sort of, it's very, uh, initially at least, focused on ourselves. So it is pretty heavy stuff. Um, is this what Paul is praying for the Colossians to be filled with? You betcha. Absolutely. When you ask the question, what is God's will for the world? It gives you something amazing that you cannot really achieve in any other way. And that thing is called perspective. It actually helps you to make those choices about peanut butter. And I, so rather than walking around the supermarket in a neurotic fit going, uh, what am I supposed to be doing? It gives you perspective. You say, thank you, Lord, that you've saved me. You say, yeah, you say, thank you, Lord, that you provide for me. Thank you that there's food for me. And then you go to the, the peanut butter aisle and you're like, thank you, Lord, that I'm not allergic to peanuts. And then you go, thank you, Lord, that there's extra crunchy peanut butter. This is amazing. Go Pams. And then you thank God. That's a, that's a pretty recent thing. It's pretty amazing. Big hit in our flat. And then you glorify God by enjoying it. And so perspective is amazing. Um, so it is wise to have a broader view of God's will. Know what he's up to in the world. And that's, yeah. So getting practical, where can we gain an understanding of God's will? I know this is a prayer, but at the same time, he's telling them his prayer, which is kind of a sneaky way of also getting them to have a think about it as well. So, where, where do we find out about God's will? You can say something if you want. Say it again. In the Word. In the Word. The Word is exactly right. And, uh, yeah, so, this wonderful book here, this is where we find out about God's will. And Paul's prayer is that it will be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And it's interesting because as soon as we think about God's will, we tend to think about what are the things that I am supposed to do. But God's will is a lot broader than that. It also, 
encompasses and incorporates what are the things that I'm supposed to believe? What are the things, what are the emotions I'm supposed to have? How much am I supposed to love so-and-so? It's inclusive. It's a lot broader than we like to think. Um, so it's not really just about should I do this or should I do that? And ultimately, um, a lot of God's will is actually that we believe the right things. So a, a classic passage for this is Romans 12, ch uh, chapter 12, verse 2. It says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So renewing your mind in the scriptures equals knowing God's will. Paul also prays, if you follow along the passage, that this filling with the knowledge of God's will will be accompanied with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The wisdom and understanding spoken of are necessary to move from the big picture stuff through to the everyday life kind of stuff. Uh, moving from principle to practice. Let me illustrate this. Um, which book of the Bible can I find out how to utilize the internet in a godly way? This, this is from the past. <laughs> like it was written a while ago. There is no manual on how to use the internet. Um. <laughs> Nevertheless, the scriptures are entirely sufficient in revealing the will of God. Uh, but this is where wisdom and understanding come into play. And the addition of the word spiritual, spiritual wisdom and understanding... Um, pneumaticos in the Greek indicates that both wisdom and understanding proceed from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So we're not just left alone. Uh, moving on to the next verse, it says, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Um, and it says, so as. So Paul prays, he's been praying that they may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And the so as introduces the purpose of this filling. He's saying there's a reason why I'm asking for this filling. And in Paul's theology, there's never a disconnect between the thought and the action. We can get all sort of, oh, I've just got to have this sort of thought. But if the thought doesn't result in something at some point in time, whether that's a correct emotion or um, a right action, it's, it's not worth anything. So in Paul's theology, he's all about think these things in order to act in this way, in order to feel this way. Um, so there's never a disconnect. And thinking about God's big will and all that will lead to walking in a manner worthy of the Lord and being pleasing to him. And the Greek word here for worthy uh, talks about heaviness, it talks about weight. So walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. It's saying, this weighs so much. Walk in a way that weighs this much as well. And there's two ways in, this which, in which this is true. Uh, in which our lives are to have weightiness and significance. The first is in regards to, in a sense, imitating the weightiness of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The life of God as a man on earth. It was certainly the most significant, weighty and purposeful life ever lived. Always pleasing, always glorifying the Father. The second way in which this is true, in which we're to imitate that, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, is in regard to our present union with Christ. 
that we now have by virtue of his life, death, and resurrection. One is a response of aspiration. I want to live like Christ. We see what he's done. And we're like, wow, I want to live like that. The other one is a response to a present reality. Wow, I am like Christ. And I want to be like that. So in the second, we are saying, we, are, we praise God and say, thank you, Lord, that I am like that. In the first, we aspire to something. And this is a biblical tension that is really at the heart of what, um, what Paul is trying to say here. It's the now and the not yet. We are perfect in Christ, but not yet perfect in Christ. And it's one of the key gospel tensions that we as a church are learning to live with. What does it mean that I am entirely righteous? What does it mean? Like, I don't feel entirely righteous. I certainly want to be entirely righteous. The, the word of God says I am righteous. How do I... It's, it's, it's a, and hence the, the, the sermon title, A Life That Is Fully Pleasing to the Father Who Is Well Pleased With Us. So the first way in which we can be pleasing to the Father is to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And we desire to do so because of what he's done in us. And this begins with being filled with the knowledge of his will. And you might be asking, what does this look like in practice? What does a walk that is worthy of the Lord look like? Well, the next, or at the continuing in verse 10, it says, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So, the meaning of this is that the Christian life is to exhibit continual fruitfulness. Uh, that fruit being good works. And as soon as people hear good works, it's kind of like, ooh, good works. This is, there's something bad here. We're supposed to... I think when we hear a lot of the gospel um, and, and avoiding legalism, we get this sort of tragic sort of distaste for good works. Like, oh, okay, it's not my good works, it's not my good works, it's not my good works, it's Christ's good works. But Paul is all about good works. It's just, where, what emphasis do you place on them? Where do you place the, that emphasis? So good works are the natural fruit of a right relationship with God, but they're never the root of that right relationship. Uh, Jesus says in John 15 verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. So bearing fruit is a natural consequence of being united to the vine, who is Christ. And secondly, it says, increasing in the knowledge of God. The second element of a walk that is worthy of the Lord is increasing in the knowledge of God. So, just like fruit represents a present tense habitual action, bearing fruit, um, so growing in the knowledge of God, or increasing in the knowledge of God, is also a habitual sort of action. We do this over time, but it's a relational activity. Uh, not, uh, I'm going to spend some time learning about God. It's like getting to know your spouse rather than getting to know King Edward III. He's dead. You can find out lots about him, but you can't get to know him. So, where, here's an easy question. Where most thoroughly has God revealed himself? True. <laughs> Where has he most thoroughly revealed the cross? <laughs> In the word. <laughs> so, again, comes down to spending time in this book. So, how do we grow and increase in the knowledge of God? Well, spend time in this book, but don't just spend time there. Actually, talk to God about it. Because, ultimately, we only can do one thing. You have the power to put this in your head. 
you don't have the power to put it in your heart. But if you don't put it in your head, it will never make it to your heart. So you need to spend time actually putting it in there, um, which means reading it, meditating on it, thinking about it, and most importantly, actually spending time talking to God about it. This is his revelation of himself. And so it's really important to remember that God is actually in the business of drawing people to himself, relationally. It's not a, he needs servants or slaves or anything like that. He requires nothing from us, but he desires a relationship with us. And therefore, increasing in the knowledge of God, it's, it's like falling in love. It's, a, it's a, a process. You get to know someone over time. And if you have any doubt about this, let the words of John 17.3 persuade you. It says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So all of eternity is actually about knowing God. And this eternity started actually the day that he saved us. We got to know God. And we grow in that. So we have the first part of being pleasing to God, according to these verses. The, the first way in which we can be pleasing to God is by walking in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. And that happens through knowing his will, and that manifests itself in bearing fruit and growing in the knowledge of God. The second way, according to verse... What are we up to? <laughs> yeah. Um, getting up, up to verse 11 now. It says, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. So, the second prayer that Paul prays is a, a prayer on behalf of the Colossians to be strengthened as a church. And I'm not sure if you've noticed recently, but life is actually not that easy. It's kind of hard. There's a lot of things that are opposing us. There's actually a, a full-scale battle according to the scriptures, raging all around us for the souls of men. And as God's representatives and his children, we are constantly being arrayed by all manner of, yeah, just pain and hardship. And the powers of the darkened world around us are constantly in conflict with us. So, and it's true, just as true today as it was in first century Colossae. There's a lot more... Um, not more of a pagan presence in the time, but it's it's equally as true. Those powers haven't sort of slipped off the radar. So, because we're constantly at war, it's only the divine strengthening of the Holy Spirit, by the divine strengthening of the Holy Spirit, that we maintain faith at all. And so, this strengthening Paul prays for is a continuous empowerment of the Christian by God. And he does not supply us just according to our needs. It actually says... May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Um, I have a certain friend who's quite into uh, cars of various kinds. Anything with an engine he gets mildly excited about. Um, I think he has a 250cc motorbike at the moment, but he is contemplating getting a 500cc motorbike. And it's ludicrous. It doesn't, like, in terms of what's required for him on this road, he could probably get away with a 50cc motorbike. Um, but he's got a 250cc motorbike and now he's going, he's looking for a 500 one and because he's a law abiding citizen I don't know what he's going to do with it but it's kind of like that with, with God the, the strength that he supplies is well over and above what we require at this current point in time um, but he does that because he's pleased with us 
He wants us to persevere and to endure. Um, so he, he supplies us in accordance with his glorious and abundant strength. There's actually another way that this passage has been interpreted, according to the Greek, and, and the, the more literal sense would be that it actually says, um, it might be better rendered as the might of his glory. So it says there, his glorious might. It might actually be better rendered the might of his glory, which points to us gaining strength as we observe the glory of God. And that's actually quite a biblical um there's, there's numerous passages that talk us about beholding God and gaining strength from that. Um, so you can take that one either way. <laughs> um, so the earlier prayer, God's knowledge, uh, for the purpose of... Um, yeah, he had a purpose for it, that we might work, walk in a way that is pleasing to God. The second prayer is also for a purpose. So... May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. So the word translated endurance has to do with perseverance through, uh, through circumstantial trials. Uh, and the actual word denotes, it's kind of the opposite of um, cowardice and despondency. So it could be translated as the ability to see all things through. And so God gives us power under great trials to see things through, to, to bear up and not lose heart. And Paul's prayer for the Colossians is that it will be amply strengthened by God's power to persevere through whatever may come their way in forms of trials and difficulties and hardships. And the second uh, one translated patience is in relation to people. So we had circumstances, now we've got people. And so it talks about people that are on an even keel, uh, patient, they're not easily angered. They're constantly, um, they know who they are. Uh, it's uh, the word translated in the King James as long-suffering. Um, so they're, just, they're, they're capable of dealing with very difficult trials and persecutions over long amounts of time. And there's a qualifier in there as well, a very important one. It says, with joy. So joy is actually the pervading element of all this. And very characteristic of the Christian, only the Christian really, to be able to bear through hardships and trials and sufferings with joy. You don't see that anywhere else in the world. And I think this is where it's so pleasing to God when we endure hardships with joy because it signifies to the world that we're actually looking to something else other than our immediate circumstance. So in the present... It says, even now, Christ is my hope and my strength and my joy. And we look to the future and say, in the future, Christ is my hope and my, and my strength and my joy. We're, we're talking about a greater reality that is really manifested in that joy when we, when it's, and people can see that. Like, why? So when Paul and Silas are in prison and they're just ecstatic, like, woo, their backs have been ripped open. And they're in the, the deepest, darkest part of the dungeon. And they're singing and dancing. And that joy is freaky. It's weird. People will think you're insane. But it's, it's, it's speaking about a truth that is greater. Um, so we persevere with joy, and that's pleasing to God. The last, and probably most important, 
uh, way in which we're to be pleasing to the God who is pleased with us is by growing in gratitude. So if we look in verse 12, all that is summed up by giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So what is gratitude? Well, thankfulness, appreciation, gratefulness, and it's always in response to something that someone's given or done for you, so something, something that someone has done for you. So, and genuine gratitude is something that you feel. It's, it doesn't really work as a, um, I don't know, you've probably had those sort of dinner table moments. Uh, Charlie, can you pass Johnny the gravy? What do you say, Johnny? Johnny? Uh, thanks. Like, we, 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 get the, we get taught gratitude, but gratitude really is something that you feel. And although we should try and cultivate gratitude, it remains that genuine gratitude is actually a response. You respond to something with gratitude. And the magnitude of our gratitude should also be in keeping with the gift that is given. So it's natural to have differing levels of gratitude to someone who gives you a sticky gum to someone who risks their life to save you. you should, there should be a difference there. So earlier in the passage, Paul prays for the Colossians they might be filled with the knowledge of God's will in order that they might walk in a manner worthy of, of the Lord. Then he prays that they might be strengthened with God's power in order that they might persevere with joy. So what does Paul pray in order that the Colossians might grow in gratitude. If you look at the text, he doesn't pray anything. He just sort of subtly morphs into a proclamation of God's awesomeness. So he tells the Father, qualifying us, delivering us, transferring us, and redeeming us. And it turns out that what, is, what has been done is of such a magnitude that it can't but inspire gratitude in the hearts of his children. And this is where we start to find out in much more greater detail, how and why God is so pleased with us. So verse 12 starts with, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And the first thing to note is that we're giving thanks to the Father. And the reason I mention this is because there's a, a really unbiblical myth that persists in, in culture that the God of the Old Testament is bad and uh, sort of, busy doing all sorts of things to all sorts of people. But then you get the God of the New Testament, Jesus, sort of breath of fresh air, the nice guy, sort of floating around in a dress, doing stuff. And and it's completely... And, and so we get this sort of... this uh, picture from culture that is completely unbiblical because Scripture states that it's actually God who ordained our salvation. God the Father. It was His plan enacted through Christ who willingly went with that plan in order to redeem us. And that salvation was applied to our hearts. So when it says we give thanks, or well, salvation was applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So when it says that we give thanks to the Father, it's entirely fitting. He's the good Father. Even if your view of, your, of the Father has been distorted by the failings of your earthly Father, let it be known that He is the good Father. And the first thing that He's done for his children is to qualify us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And this word qualify in the Greek speaks of making us sufficient, rendering us fit, making us competent, 
it's qualified in the past tense as well, which is great news. We're talking about a work that's already been done, not something that has yet to be done. And so we know now, okay, I'm qualified. And that may not mean all that much at this very point in time. So we'll continue. What exactly is the inheritance that he's qualified us for? Well, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light is essentially to be counted as one of God's people. There's a real um, pointing back to the old covenant inheritance of the promised land. So now the new covenant people of God are those that have come to share a portion in the kingdom of light mentioned at the end of verse 12. And how does this help us grow in gratitude? Well, the very inclusion of the statement that he has qualified points very bluntly to the fact that we have no qualification in and of ourselves for this inheritance. In fact, we've failed miserably on every conceivable front. And so has everyone ever. So you might think, okay, inheritance in this, with, the, with the saints in light, okay. Saints in light. Saints sound like good people. And the light, well, that's probably where they went because they were good people. Oh, cool, I'm being qualified for that. That's kind of, I'm not really that great, but I get to hang out with those dudes that have made it. Yeah. But no, no one has ever made it. Ever. There is none righteous. No, not one. As it says in Romans 3, we are fallen, disobedient, rebellious humanity before a holy and righteous and just God. No one has ever met the, the conditions of any inheritance apart from an inheritance of an eternal destruction. So how has God achieved a qualification for us? Well, the next verse says, He has delivered us. The first proof of the Father's qualifying us is seen in the deliverance from the domain of darkness. It says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. For the Colossians, this would have been a much more tangible reality. I mean, pagan worship of all kinds was going on everywhere. We still have the sort of uh, it's a fading light, but a light nevertheless of a, of a post-Christian society. We don't see the full manifestation of all that's not wonderful. Um, and there's still a, a remnant of that blessing because of all the things in the past. But it remains that everyone here who has received that good news has been delivered from the domain of darkness. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 to 3 makes this very clear. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you once walked, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our desires, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So you see that the domain of darkness described here is not just something that oppressed us, it was actually something that we were an intrinsic part of. We're not just victims of the darkness, but actually perpetrators of the darkness as well. Swayed to and fro by evil desires, dead in our sins, very much under the rule of Satan, contentedly living in darkness, pretending that our deeds are seen by no one. And we and you, or you and I, the Colossians, Paul, everyone, part of that domain, um, and which is just fundamentally and, and deeply opposed to the creator and the sustainer of the universe and, and by very nature of being opposed is absolutely destined for destruction so every man and woman and child who's ever been born into this domain I mean the nice man 
the angry woman at the lights, the religious man, the gangster, the family man, the man who cheats on taxes, the man who cheats on his wife, the kid who cheats in a test, the kid who doesn't cheat in the test. All of us born into and participating in the darkness, either shaking a fist of defiance at God or shaking a fist of self-righteousness at God. In truth, we were not even looking to be rescued any more than a pig desires to be rescued from the mud that it's wallowing in. But this is the great love of the Father. He delivered us, rescued us, from the terrible fate of being destroyed eternally as part of the domain that so opposes and offends his righteousness. And it says this here, check this out in verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. It's like we're not left without a state, without a realm, without a citizenship. I don't know if there's a character called Julian Assange at the moment who's sort of managed to offend everyone. And he's got this terrible predicament of being basically a man without a state. There's no one who's going to claim him, and everyone's after him. But we're not left like that. It's actually a a present tense reality that we've been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. So we still live in this world amongst all manner of darkness, And it it seems a lot of the time like we're exiles, and we are, but we are waiting for the return of that son. And nevertheless, we actually experience his blessings even now. We experience the blessings of the kingdom as a present tense reality. We are now in the light. So I don't know if you've ever had any uh, dealings with immigration. If you're born in a certain country, it's quite easy to become a citizen, like you are a citizen. But if you haven't been born in that country and you try to become a citizen, there's all sorts of qualifications. Um, you have to have a, a qualification in it or a trade or a profession. Um, you're going to have to pass some sort of language test. You're going to, you can't have any criminal convictions that are terrible um, or even not so terrible. So <coughs> if anyone's ever dealt with New Zealand immigration, <laughs> you'll know that that's, it's not that easy to get into anything. Um, but what about us? What are the qualifications required to become a citizen of the kingdom of his beloved son? There's only one. Absolute perfection. So how did this raggedy bunch qualify? No offense, but (laughs) how did we get there? (laughs) He has qualified us. So let's look back at our passage. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This in whom that is spoken of at the beginning of verse 14 speaks of one of the grandest mysteries of all scripture, and I'm going to fail miserably around about now in trying to expound it, but I'm speaking of our present union with Christ. We're not just found to be part of uh, the kingdom of the, of the Father's beloved son. We're actually found in the beloved son. And having been through Ephesians, the number of times it mentions in Christ is amazing. So remembering the qualification of absolute perfection required for entry into the kingdom and remembering that we were previously part of the domain of darkness, we see now that it's by virtue of our union with Christ that this qualification of perfection is met. It says of this union, his beloved son, in whom we have redemption. And it it qualifies that again, and it says, 
the forgiveness of sins. So Christ walking on earth as a man, living a life of perfect obedience, of whom the Father said, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. This Son was crucified, and he suffered under the Romans, but more importantly, he suffered under the wrath of the Father, bearing in his body the full penalty for all our dark deeds, drinking down the cup of God's fierce anger and hatred on account of our rebellion. And there is an important word there, imputation. It means to put on. Or to, to, and, and, it's, and it's at the heart of our being qualified. Our sins were imputed to Christ, though he had no sin. Also, his righteousness was imputed to us, though we have none of our own. So our absolute, we are absolutely perfect now because it's been imputed to us. So it can be seen that in Christ, we are now fully pleasing to the Father. He says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And now it's, these are my sons and daughters in whom I am well pleased. And this is where we need to live. Here, meditating on these grand truths. Things that move our hearts to thanksgiving. And we grow in gratitude when we come again and again and try, just attempt to fathom what's been done. But why grow in gratitude? Firstly, thanksgiving glorifies God. It pleases Him. People see it and they go, who's been thanked? For what? And it glorifies God. Secondly, it pleases us deeply. It's hard to find more annoying company than someone who is ungrateful. Like just someone who's got everything, but just whinging. It's like, oh, go away. <laughs> so, in all honesty, you will have no real joy in this life until you have real gratitude. Thankfulness dissipates discontentment. It does, it really does. So magnify the God who saved you and live a more joyful life by growing in gratitude. I realize this has been quite long, so this is the, <laughs> the conclusion. So we've seen that God is pleased with us because he has made us pleasing to himself in Christ. God is pleased with you. Do you believe that? If you have believed the gospel the good news that Christ has made a way for sinners, the Father is pleased with you. If you've given up attempts to be justified by your own works, and you've admitted your guilt, and you've accepted the free gift of grace, God is pleased with you. He's happy with you. He's stoked with you. And not just a casual like, um, okay, who's believed my gospel recently? Okay, took over here, good work. No, he's delighted with you. Because he's delighted in his own son. Because he was pleased with the earthly life of his son, and that's been imputed to us, he is now delighted with us fully. Because we are in him. And knowing this, we now respond. We want to, we want to respond by being pleasing to him. So even as we are pleasing to him, we desire in this life now to be pleasing to him. Those of you who are married or in a relationship, if you have an absolute guarantee that no matter what happens, your spouse is always for you, completely full of love, does that make you want to 
just throw caution to the wind and just go do all manner of devious things? Or does that make you want to respond with love? Knowing that God loves us unconditionally, that he's pleased with us, makes us want to respond. That's what draws out righteousness. Walking in a way that is pleasing to God. Desiring to be near God. Growing in his knowledge. And the knowledge of God. Good works. All these things. If you don't believe that God is for you, you're never going to want to know him. So you need to know these things. So we respond by desiring to be pleasing to him in this life. And we do that by walking in a manner worthy to the Lord, worthy of the Lord, persevering in joy, and growing in thanksgiving. And I'm just going to pray the prayer that Paul prayed for the Colossians for us. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that Christ's sanctuary may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Uh, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.